an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I want to begin with sort of what has the American law said about contraception throughout our time as Americans. And then I want to focus the, the final remarks on the current controversy, the contraception mandate. In my paper, which is uh, too long to present and frankly too boring to present orally, uh, I have a thesis, and my thesis is this, that America, just as Father Ryan said, historically has opposed artificial contraception. We are a moral people, and we are a people that believes that there is a purpose for sex that goes beyond mere pleasure. We're not opposed to mere pleasure, we're fans of pleasure, but it goes beyond pleasure, and we've always understood that. We've understood that adults have responsibilities to the children they conceive. But there has been an orchestrated campaign that really took its form in the early 1900s to persuade the American people as well as American Catholics that we were wrong on those principles. We have been told that there is a technological imperative that we accept that fertility is a disease or something that should be subject to absolute control through mechanical or pharmaceutical means. And I'd like to prove that, and I think that the contraceptive mandate is one of, is perceived as the last battle in conquering the hearts and minds of the American people on this, on this issue. So let me begin with sort of where we start. In the 1800s and the early 1900s, we had a complete code of laws regarding sexual behavior and there was no concept in any of the judges minds in the 1800 that there was some sort of constitutional realm of privacy that the state could not regulate if that conduct had very real consequences to the common good very real consequences in the public square sex makes babies and babies need a mom and a dad and society has an interest in that and so there really was no constitutional question or even any question in the public mind in the 1800s about the state's ability to regulate sexual conduct in order to promote chastity so every state had what were called public morals laws that criminalized adultery, fornication, sodomy, and unnatural acts. Now, <clears throat> many states continue to have criminal laws related to adultery, but they are not enforced. We still have criminal laws related to sex with underage minors. We still have criminal laws related to sex with animals. There are a number of laws that continue to remain on the books, but their enforcement is rare and constitutionally questionable under current interpretations. Separate from criminal laws, which are those laws where the state says this is of such public import that we will take away people's liberty and that the state, the community, has a separate interest from that of the private actors. We had private civil laws, laws where private individuals could come and say to the court, I have been injured by this person and therefore this person owes me restitution. They need to make me whole. And those laws included seduction, so that where a woman was persuaded to lose her chastity prior to marriage, she could actually sue the man who had induced her reliance, perhaps upon the second cause of action, a promise to marry. So a woman could sue for breach of the promise to marry as well. There are some very interesting cases about that involving wealthy men. And frankly, the same cautionary tale exists today. A friend of ours who learned to his uh, detriment that chastity is not only the right code, but the prudent code, uh, had engaged in a relationship with a woman that was more interested in his financial prowess than in his very nature and soul. That relationship ended, as one might expect, and he married subsequently. But because he had lived with the first woman and had on rare occasion held themselves out as Mr. and Mrs., the second woman came and said, 
I'm going to file a suit for, adult, for adultery and bigamy. This man, who owned his own company and was very fiscally uh, successful, settled the case to make it go away. So this idea of breach to promise to marry and civil lawsuits still continues, but the idea of seduction, the idea of uh, the uh, alienation of affection, courts are declining to enforce. Alienation of affection is a particular interest to me because in a no-fault divorce world, what is the remedy for the spouse who wants to maintain the marriage? Is there no remedy that the courts can give to the faithful husband or wife who's been injured by the inter interference of a third party in their marriage? Historically, American courts and American legislatures have said, of course there is. That hussy should have to pay up. Or that Lothario should have to pay up. And yet courts have now said that we will no longer enforce these. But this was not always the case. Through the 1950s, there was a very clear code of sexual morality built both into our civil and criminal statutes. And if you'd like to learn more about it, I would refer you to Robert Rhodes' wonderful book on chastity, which is available through Amazon, I don't make a dime on it, or through academic libraries, the majority of that book appears in his law review article published in the Notre Dame Law Review. It's a marvelous history of the chastity laws and the decline of chastity laws in this country and their injury to women's interest. So the law promoted chastity from the founding of this country through the 1950s. <clears throat> there was a broad consensus, as Father Ryan said, on contraception, abortion, and obscene materials. And this is most clearly exhibited in what are called the Comstock Laws. The Comstock Laws are laws that are named after Mr. Comstock, who founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he led a nationwide campaign that resulted in a federal law. This federal law, as it shows, forbade the selling or publishing or promoting of any drug or medicine or any article whatever for the prevention of conception or for causing unlawful abortion and this advertising of these things and it made it a federal crime. Those who did these things were guilty of a misdemeanor and could be imprisoned at hard labor for not less than six months or more than five years and subject to a $100 to $2,000 fine. So there were federal laws, which is extraordinary. There were federal laws that forbade the sale and promotion of contraception, obscene materials, drugs and artifacts related to abortion, etc. These were passed in the late 1800s, but they were challenged. They were challenged initially in 1918 by Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger, of course, founded Planned Parenthood. She was part of the new eugenics movement that began in the United States in the 1900s. It's an old idea, but the idea was that through breeding, we could improve the stock of Americans. Therefore, they wanted to suppress those individuals whose stock did not contribute, people like the Irish, people who were immigrants coming into this country, as well as, quote, the feeble-minded. And in pursuit of that eugenic view, states across the nation passed laws that caused two things. One, the sterilization of those who had been institutionalized for mental illness or retardation, and two, the sterilization of habitual criminals. Those laws were brought before the United States Supreme Court in the early 1960s. And in the case of the habitual criminals, in a case called Skinner v. Oklahoma, the court said that the state of Oklahoma could not, could not punish a habitual criminal, a man convicted three times of different crimes in that state, by mandatory sterilization. Why? The court said because there wasn't adequate evidence that criminality was something that was the product of breeding. Contrast this with the Buck v. Bell case that had come before the court in the early 40s where Carrie Bell, 
who was the daughter of a woman who had been institutionalized for feeble-mindedness and who herself gave birth to another daughter who state officials determined, we now believe inaccurately, to be feeble-minded or retarded. Because there were three generations, state officials in that case said, we will sterilize Carrie Bell. Lawyers came forward to represent her and said, you cannot do this. This is unconstitutional. And in a very famous opinion, written by Justice Holmes, Justice Holmes said that three generations of imbeciles is enough and that the Constitutional posed no barrier to state officials sterilizing those who they determined to be feeble-minded. Feeble now, sterilization in that case is still the law of the country today. It has never been overruled, Buck v. Bell. Sterilization was seen as being a great burden, but permissible in the case of feeble-mindedness because of this eugenic schemes, but contraception was treated very differently in the law. In 1918, Margaret Sanger started the first birth control clinic in the country in New York, and she employed at that clinic physicians and non-physicians. It was shut down within three weeks by New York public officials as violating state and federal law, and in court, Ms. Sanger argued that she had a constitutional right to distribute contra uh, contraception, especially where necessary to protect the health of the woman. We've heard this before. The trial court held that the Constitution was not implicated and that the statute did indeed forbid the sale of contraception by non-physicians but that a separate statute in New York allowed physicians to distribute contraception for therapeutic purposes. So in 1918, we have the very first case where the courts distinguished the use of artificial contraception for contraceptive purposes generally from those purposes for therapeutic. Now the definition of therapeutic is deeply contested. And many of the cases seem to suggest that as long as a doctor's involved, it's therapeutic. Okay. Regardless of whether there is any evidence of a particular disease, which leads to part of the fight over the contraceptive mandate. But it's important to note that since 1918, we've been fighting over the issue of whether or not contraception is therapeutic or medically indicated. <laughs> All right. Fast forward from that to Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. As Father Ryan said, in 1918, we still had a very broad consensus in this country that contraception was largely undesirable. Now that consensus was more in theory than in fact, honestly. In 1930, there was a multi-million dollar industry distributing various forms of contraception, including condoms and uh, various other devices that were purported to stop conception that may in part have been attributed to, as Father Ryan said, the desperate economic times. So this multi-million dollar industry, needless to say, began to interest various manufacturers of pharmaceuticals in the country. Simultaneous with the economic woes and the interest in perhaps developing a contraceptive industry, World War II broke out. World War II, at least in the Pacific, by many historians is due in part, if not largely in part, to the population pressures that Japan was experiencing. They couldn't go into China, they came into the Pacific, and therefore started the conflict with America in Pearl Harbor. During that time, John D. Rockefeller III, the heir to the oil tycoon, served in the Army as secretary over the Asian Pacific for certain aspects of that war, the economic aspects primarily. He came home after World War II absolutely convinced that the only way to peace in the future was to avoid the problems of overpopulation that he observed in Asia. He was convinced that at least the Pacific War could have been avoided 
if there had not been such grave and serious population pressures. And those population pressures, he believed, were continuing to grow in Asia in particular. So he came back devoted to the cause of eliminating overpopulation. He was joined in this by the founder of the Dixie Cup. You know those little paper cups that you find still in some hotels to rinse your mouth out in the morning or the sort of thing that you handed out in uh, vacation Bible school with the little juice and the cookie? That was, of course, an extremely successful venture. And Mr. Howard, upon selling the Dixie Cup Corporation to outside investors, de dedicated the rest of his life to fighting overpopulation, which he absolutely believed was the path to prosperity and peace for our country. So you had two of the wealthiest men in the country join forces to promote the Malthusian idea that world peace could only be achieved by a reduction of world population, particularly world population outside our borders. But they had two very different approaches to it. John D. Rockefeller's, of course, a brother of Nelson Rockefeller, who was, who had grave political aspirations, ultimately served as mayor of New York, or I'm sorry, as governor of New York. And so when he proposed to the Rockefeller Foundation that they undertake population control as a major project to this very large charitable foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation went, hmm. <laughs> That's a little controversial. And you know, those Catholics, mm, we don't think so. And so they declined to get involved in promotion of laws that would repeal our anti-contraception laws and would promote contraception through public funding. But what they did agree to do is to assist John D. Rockefeller III in establishing the Population Council. The Population Council exists today. The Population Council is a privately funded, very large nonprofit organization that's primary purpose is demographic research throughout the world. Because in the early 1940s, demography was a new science. We really didn't know how many people there were in the world. So, how we could know it was overpopulated to me is a bit of a puzzle, but at least as Mr. Rockefeller went through the slums of Asia, he decided it was overpopulated. Now, most of the people in this room know that if we took the entire population of the world today and gave every family a quarter acre lot, we could fit it in the state of Texas. So it's kind of hard to believe that it's overpopulation, but nonetheless, they believed it, because of course, not everybody lives in the great state of Texas. So, so Population Council began to send advisors to Korea and to India and to Japan and all of these other countries in order to teach people how to count the population for demographic purposes and how to view demographic growth and document it for public purposes to be used in advocacy for public funding of population measures. Today, we have the UN Commission on Population and Development, a direct outgrowth of the Population Council. That was Rockefeller's project. Politically acceptable, very high-class Protestant, done in the sense of noblesse oblige. Then we have John Howard. <laughs> John Howard was a different kind of entrepreneur. <laughs> he didn't inherit his wealth, he made his wealth. And as we see with these sorts of individuals, they're usually very high driven, very high energy, and sometimes finesse is not in their toolkit. <laughs> he believed that we ought to pass laws that stop these little brown people from populating. And he was very clear about it. And he was very active. Now, he started out supporting Margaret Sanger and was a fan of Margaret Sanger. In fact, Margaret Sanger sponsored and he funded a number of conferences on overpopulation and why contraception should be made available, particularly to stop the feeble-minded, the habitual criminals, which we know are primarily made up of those little brown people. So, she drove Planned Parenthood's initial 
phase through this appeal to overpopulation. But after World War II, when we learned of the, genetic, the eugenics experiments of the Nazis, public interest became cooled on this approach. And the leadership of Planned Parenthood shifted to, and this is a phrase that we find in UN conventions today, the right of the family to time and space their children. Contraception in UN speak and in the second phase of Planned Parenthood's development was about a woman's right and a family's right to plan the timing and spacing of their children. That's the phrasing you still see in various international conventions today. So, John Howard began to lose interest in Planned Parenthood because they were not sufficiently aggressive on the overpopulation. But again, he poured a vast amount of wealth into this campaign. As a result of that, and the efforts of John D. Rockefeller III, state governments, but not the federal government, began to experiment with family planning as part of their public health funding in order to control the growth of poverty, in order to control the growth of poverty. Well, in the 1960s, with the sexual revolution, with a rehashing of the Malthusian theory of overpopulation, with the publish of Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, the American public began to be interested again in contraception. And Connecticut had a law in the books, it was the only law in the country that provided, that it was illegal to use contraception. Many states had laws still on the books that made it illegal to sell contraception, but like the New York law, they had an exception for physicians for therapeutic purposes. But for the unique nature of the law in Griswold versus Connecticut, it appears that the court would not have entered into the contraception fight. <clears throat> because just two years earlier, a different law had been brought before the court, and the court said there's no constitutional question, go away. But in Griswold versus Connecticut, a doctor associated with Yale University set up a birth control clinic and discussed it in class and handed out some condoms. He then asked to be prosecuted. So if you've ever seen a friendly lawsuit, it's this one. Asked to be prosecuted under the old <coughs> Connecticut law and joined some married couples that were using contraception. The case made it up to the United States Supreme Court. And we have the first opinion of the US Supreme Court that finds a constitutional right to use contraception for non-therapeutic purposes. They strike down the law, but they strike down the law based on this reasoning. Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate, to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faith, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social profits, projects. Yet is, it is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. And so a majority of the court in this case said that for the state to try to regulate what happens between a married couple within the confines of the marital bedroom violates an implied right to privacy a right to privacy that, while not expressly stated in the text of the Constitution or the, the Bill of Rights, is one that historically has been recognized from the founding of our country. Now, I would agree that in the text of our Constitution, we find various rights to privacy, a right to privacy in our papers, we find clearly in the Bill of Rights. We find a right to privacy in our thoughts to some degree. But the idea that it could not regulate the sale and manufacture of a product that legislators had determined harmful to the public good is quite a change in our interpretation of the Constitution. But grounded in the very narrow idea that married couples should be free to use contraception because of the unique and privileged nature of marriage. Well, now, that sounds like a very narrow exception to some degree, something that doesn't strike at the very heart of these chastity laws. 
And had it stayed that way, maybe the culture would be different. But just three years later, the court had before it a case called Eisenstadt v. Baird. And in Eisenstadt v. Baird, the attack was on a statute that limited the sale of contraception to married couples. The argument was that single people are in no different position than married couples as to the dangers of an ill-timed conception, and therefore they need the protection of contraception, and sexual activity is sufficiently private that the government not, ought, ought not be involved in it. So the court had to explain why it was willing to expand its original decision in Griswold grounded clearly on the unique nature of marriage to single people who were at that point in time engaging in conduct that was still illegal in a majority of states. Not prosecuted, but the laws were on the books. So the court said, it is true that in Griswold the right of privacy in question inured in the marital relation. Yet the marital couple is not an independent entity with a mind and a heart of its own, but an association of two individuals, each with a separate intellectual and emotional makeup. If the right to privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. So what was initially begun as a therapeutic exception for physicians, then developed to a marital exception because of the unique privacy needed to cultivate the intimacy of marriage, now transmutes in 1968 into the right of the individual to sexual decisional privacy. a very dramatic shift in just three short years, and simultaneous with a shift to no-fault divorce. For those who are not persuaded yet that contraception and abortion are connected to the fight over the definition of, a, of marriage, I would suggest, again, a reading of Robert Rhodes' book, as well as a careful study of the way the cases develop in this area. The two are tremendously related. And here we see the impact again that marriage isn't really a new creation of the two that creates a union, what the law used to call a moiety, something separate and bigger than the two individuals, but rather it is simply the contractual alliance of two individuals. And if those individuals choose to do something separately, that is no concern of the court. Now, the court disregarded the Attorney General's defense of the law, which was based largely on what we now know to be true, that the chastity laws promoted a public morality that in turn reinforced sexual self-restraint, and that there was a great public good, even in those laws that stay on the books with no enforcement. They are public statements. They are educational statements of the public policy. But the court, in this case, made fun of the argument that it was necessary to limit contraception to married couples in order to avoid extramarital or non-marital sex, and that to strike down the law would encourage all sorts of sexual practices. The court said it would be plainly unreasonable to assume that the state has prescribed pregnancy and the birth of an unwanted child, or, and we begin to see the seeds that are actually not seeds, we're now seedlings of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, we're five years out from it, for the physical and psychological damages of an abortion as punishment for fornication. It's ridiculous to think that people in the throes of passion are going to be aware of the laws against it. And therefore, it's clearly unconstitutional. Now, in Griswold versus Connecticut, there was a great dissent in which one of the justices said, this is an uncommonly silly law, but it's not unconstitutional. In my mind, that is a perfect statement of judicial restraint. <laughs> 
There are indeed, from my perspective, a number of uncommonly silly laws, or even problematic laws, or bad laws, but they are not necessarily unconstitutional. The court has assumed upon itself the right to rewrite the Constitution to avoid uncommonly silly laws, or in its view. Well, we see then from there that the court goes to Roe, but also goes more to point of this conference to expand the contraception right yet once again. Because New York responding to these laws came back and said, okay, we are going to allow the sale of contraception to any adults, but we're going to require parental consent for the sale of contraception to a minor. Now the law in this country generally is that parents control the health care of a minor in every instance except emergency care and abortion and contraception. So the New York law was challenged by International Population Services who claimed that minors had a constitutional right to access contraception without parental involvement. Now the court tried to craft a very narrow exception. And so they said, our decision proceeds on the assumption that the Constitution does not bar sec state regulation of the sexual behavior of minors. We're not saying that you can't have statutory rape laws. We're not saying that you can't have all sorts of laws that protect minors from unwanted sexual activity. Justice White and Stevens took an even stronger stance, characterizing the argument that a minor has a constitutional right to engage in sex as frivolous. And Justice Rehnquist described the result required by the plurality, he was in the dissent, as a denial of a power to self-government, so fundamental to self-government that it must in the long run prove to be but a temporary departure from a wise and heretofore settled course of adjudication to the contrary. Unfortunately, Rehnquist was not prophetic because now every state in the union as a condition of Title X makes contraception available to a minor without parental consent. Every state in the union by statutory mandate. So three cases in a very short time span totally altered the law regarding the state's power to regulate contraception. So, with Griswold versus Connecticut and with Eisenstadt v. Baird, Lyndon Johnson comes to power. Lyndon Johnson is the president who started the Great War on Poverty. And continuing the theme of John D. Rockefeller III and John Howard, he believes that one of the ways to deal with population problems and poverty is to promote contraception. Simultaneous with this development, of course, and immediately preceding it is the discovery of the pill, the promotion of the pill, and the distribution of the pill through private means. A number of states, by the time that the federal government gets into the act, I believe the, the number was 15 states, has included contraception in its public health programs. And Congress is a little nervous about this. So first we fund it where? We fund it through overseas. We really are worried about Asia. So we begin as part of our USAID development to include contraception to all of those funny people that we're worried about. And then in the South, and I'm from the South, but public officials were really worried about, again, the population growth. And so we began to fund it at the state level. And by the time Congress acts on this issue, contraception and publicly funded contraception for the poor is accepted as a legitimate way. We don't want to eliminate poverty, let's just eliminate the people that are poor. And so we begin to see this drive to the public promotion of contraception. 
a country that began with criminally banning the sale and promotion of contraception, that creates a limited exception for its therapeutic prescription by physicians, that then limits it to the use only by married couples, that then extends it to any adult engaged in consensual sexual activity, now comes to a state where minors can freely access it through taxpayer dollars. What's left? Who really opposes contraception? Well, there are those Neanderthals in the church, but it's not even really the church. It's just those men in black. And not even all the men in black. Father Ryan didn't talk about the Rockefeller money that was applied to visiting with the ordinaries of the church and the hierarchy of the church to encourage the very sort of rebellion that occurred right after Humanae Vitae. The immense sums of money that were expended in order to persuade right-thinking Catholics that they were standing in the way of progress. And Professor Faring did not talk about John Rock's book, A Catholic Doctor Supports Birth Control. John Rock, a Harvard tenured professor of obstetrics and gynecology who was one of the prime developers of the estrogen pill, the synthetic estrogen pill that becomes the pill. A man who in the name of the church went into Puerto Rico and administered clinical trials where three women died and he didn't care enough to find out why. Where the local director in Puerto Rico said, you can't market this pill with a 17% adverse reaction rate. And he didn't care enough to run the experiments to find out why who upped the dosage in Puerto Rico to make sure that there would be no pregnancies. And then C.D. Cyril, the pharmaceutical company, who made application for the first time in our history to the FDA for approval of something that did not treat a disease as a prescription drug. But the church stood firm in its leadership, in its magisterium, and then we began to see the shift of the culture. Now, those of you who have studied material cooperation with evil, impermissible material cooperation with evil, know one of the things to consider is, is your participation direct or remote? Do you join in the evil intent? Then it's clearly impermissible. But if you don't join in the evil intent and your participation is remote, then you truly cannot be accountable for the fact that the gun that you bought for target practice was used by the robber who broke into your house to shoot your neighbor. It's not your fault, even though factually there is a causation link, arguably. So taxpayer dollars paying for things historically has largely been considered something that doesn't implicate our personal conscience in the same way that other actions do going to war yourself. And so taxpayer funding didn't raise the issue, but the new contraception mandate put squarely at issue whether Catholics can stand for the views of the church and the views of the truth against government pressure or not, because it demands cooperation with evil, and I, I recognize there's a debate in First Things about whether this is sufficient to rise to the level of impermissible material cooperation with evil. But I stand with Deacon Greg Hall out of Texas and those who believe that it does. I stand with the 200 plaintiffs in the 80 lawsuits across the country saying that it does. Now, of course, our Vice President in the last presidential debate, didn't think it did. With regard to this idea of the assault on the Catholic Church, let me be absolutely clear, no religious institution, Catholic or otherwise, including Catholic Social Services, Georgetown Hospital, who wasn't concerned, Mercy Hospital, any hospital, none has to either refer to contraception, none has to pay for contraception, none has to be a vehicle to get contraception in any insurance policy they provide. That is a fact. And Paul Ryan, now I've got to take issue with the Catholic Church and religious liberty. 
why would they, why would they keep suing you if this is true? I think Congressman Ryan took the better side of the argument on that one. So what is the mandate and why do we oppose it? It's a regulation, it's not a law. Congress didn't have uh, a vote on this. It's something that's done by a political appointee, Secretary Sebelius. And it's a regulation under the Health Care Act. Every employer that is not exempt has to pay a $100 fine per employee a day. So there's a significant weight to it. Health insurance plans initially uh, that began in August 1 of 2012 had to cover without deductibles or copay contraception. The uh, administration delayed implementation of that because they got so, so much unhappiness about it. What are some of the drugs that are included? The FDA approved drugs include Plan B as well as uh, the Ella, which Father Ryan and Professor Faring referenced which we believe to be abortifacient. Both drugs cause abortion because they prevent the implantation of a fertilized egg. Ella can kill an embryo already implanted in the uterus. So this isn't just about preventative methods. The original exemption that many of the lawsuits were brought on required four things in order to qualify as a religious employer. One, the employer had to exist for the inculcation of religious values. That had to be the purpose of the organization. Two, the organization had to primarily employ persons who share the religious tenets of the organization. Three, it had to serve primarily persons who share the religious tenets of the organization. And four, it had to be a nonprofit under the IRS code. Now, Steubenville is unique. I was having dinner last night with your Dean of Academic Affairs, and he tells me that 90% of your faculty are Catholic here. I suspect other than Ave Maria Christendom and uh, Thomas Aquinas, there is no other Catholic college or university in the country that meets that. All right. So when we think about that it has to primarily employ Catholics, once you get outside of the parishes themselves, many of which employ some non-Catholics for various purposes, janitors, music directors, etc. Parish schools often employ non-Catholics. Once you get outside, though, those sorts of organizations, you will employ non-Catholics on a regular basis. At the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, where I teach, I, I don't know the percentages, but I know we're not anywhere near 90% Catholic. And only 40% of our students are Catholic, so we don't meet the second. Serve primarily members of our religious organization. And can you imagine a Catholic hospital that says to someone who arrives in the emergency room, I'm sorry, could I see your confirmation certificate, please? So you can imagine why Catholic organizations and other religious organizations said, this is outrageous. We can't live with this. Maybe our parishes are exempt. Maybe our parishes are exempt. But nobody else is. And we're not going to shut down our hospitals. We're not going to shut down our schools. We're not going to shut down our ministries. And so we're going to go to war. The president said, oh, no, 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 no. No, we never meant to harm Catholic colleges and universities. We never meant to harm these ministries of the church, they're valuable to the public square. And I've got an election coming, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and so he said, we're going to promulgate new regulations. So here's what the new regulations are. You have to be a nonprofit, which means ordinary employers, like Domino's Pizza when Tom Monahan owned it, don't qualify. You have to be a nonprofit. And you have to oppose coverage for some or all the contraceptive services on account of religious objection. So if Professor Faring gave a wonderful talk at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and persuaded all of these employers that contraception was basically unhealthy and that there were alternative methods that would serve their employees' needs better, that sort of secular, sensible reason would take them out of the exemption. You have to be organized and operated as a nonprofit. You have to hold itself out as a religious organization. 
and you have to self-certify that the organization satisfies these criteria. All right, so you have to be a religious organization in nature, you have to be a nonprofit, and your objection has to be grounded in religious beliefs. Well, for profit and non-religiously affiliated nonprofits, you don't count. Okay. Habitat for Humanity, you don't count. Organizations such as religiously affiliated hospitals, universities, and homeless shelters may not qualify, although we're beginning to see the administration, because the administration gets to make this decision. We're beginning to see some movement on that. And whether or not you're exempt will be determined. So let's talk about why they did it. They did it because of an Institute of Medicine report that said that contraception was key for preventative health measures. They said that it's central to women's health. But the simple fact is that women's health is not at risk through lack of contraception, sterilization, or abortion. Dr. Faring's presentation last night established quite the opposite, that women's health may well be at risk because of the promotion of contraception at such young ages for such long periods. Any woman who's ever seen the package insert for contraception knows that the print is about three-point type and it's four pages long <laughs> because of the very sort of problems that Dr. Rock should have investigated in Puerto Rico decades ago in the development of this drug. It's all about the poor. Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. We've got to do this because it's an important preventative health measure and women can't afford them. Remember the Georgetown Law student who couldn't afford her contraception, although she could afford tuition at Georgetown Law? The average cost of contraception in this country is $10 a package. It's available everywhere. And if you can't afford $10, Title X will cover it for you. It's not a question of access. Even the administration has largely given up the argument that it's a question of access. The federal government funds family, clinic, family planning clinics throughout the country that ensure that access is, is there. Here is what I think the ultimate end game is. Everybody's doing it and we will tolerate no dissent. We will so mainstream it in American culture by making everyone do it that the dissent will wither and die. The reality is that a great number of our Catholic brothers and sisters do struggle with this teaching. And there are a fair number who give intellectual assent but cannot bring themselves to practice it. Professor Faring talked about that last night. That they know the church is right just like I know my physician is right when she tells me six Cokes a day is a bad idea. But it doesn't stop me. <laughs> All right? They know it. I need that Coke to get that brief written at two in the morning. And so that really isn't at issue. What's at issue is whether as Americans, we have the right to say to the government, we won't fund something that we think is contrary to the common good. And all Americans oppose coercing conscience. Today, I think I misstated, there are 73 cases, not 80 cases, with over 200 plaintiffs across the nation on this issue. The cases divide into two sets, cases by nonprofits who don't meet the religious exemption portion, and cases by for-profits like Deacon Hall's drilling company that I want to close with that story. But before I do, let me give you just a couple more statistics. Forty-four profit lawsuits have been filed. These are men and women who have founded businesses, who believe that those businesses are part of our contribution to the common good, who believe that labor is, is a good and valuable gift, as Pope Benedict wrote about it and who want to offer jobs to others, and they have more than 50 employees because they're successful, thanks be to God. But they are not going to pay for contraception, especially abortifacient contraception, as part of their employee benefits. 
They will not do that as a matter of conscience, and a number of them will shut down first. To date, 33 of these companies have obtained rulings that are based on the claim of religious liberty. And so far, we've won the vast majority of them. In all the cases where we've gotten rulings, we've won 30 out of 35. The courts are with us on this for the moment. The courts are with us on this. The nonprofits, Little Sisters of Charity, some of you may have seen the new ad that just came out on that, are among these 32 lawsuits. Only one has been decided on the merits, and we're winning, and we're winning. So the claims in, this, in these cases are that as a matter of conscience, free exercise of religion, which is in the First Amendment of the Constitution, forbids the government in forcing us to cooperate in this directive fashion with doing something that we believe is intrinsically evil, to use the language of Humanae Vita. So let me close with the story of Deacon Greg Hall. Deacon Greg Hall is a Roman Catholic deacon. In fact, he is head of the, he chairs or whatever the proper word is, directs the deacon ministry uh, under, of course, the authority of the local ordinary down in Houston, Texas. He is a man that stands about six foot four. He is an engineer and he owns a drilling company. He owns a drilling company that goes worldwide and it helps oil companies and it helps water wells and it helps all sorts of companies that need drilling. And if you recall those Chilean miners, when the mine collapsed in on them, they were buried by solid rock. Well, Deacon Hall's company operates in Chile. And the Chilean government came to him and said, we can't get those guys out. Nothing can get through that rock. We can't see them. We know there's a safe space down there with food and water if they could get to it. We know there may be as many as 33 men down there living, breathing, praying, waiting for us. And Deacon Hall went down and said, I can do it, but I'm going to need, I'm going to need all sorts of regulations. You know, relax. We're going to have to do something that's never been done before. We're going to break bits. I know we are. We're going to use a longer drill than it's ever been used before in the history of engineering. And the Chilean president, who had just been elected, who had enemies all around, said, I'm going to stake my presidency on this. You're going to get those men out. So he instructed his government to assist in whatever way was possible. But Deacon Hall, when he tells this story, talks about Chilean lower officials standing saying, you know you can't do it. No, I don't think we can get those trucks of waters to cool that bit, those uh, bits down for you to that, to that site yet. No, you know we can't do it. And then he talks about the families that came to the drilling site who prayed every day. And the bits broke, and he couldn't do it the first week. And he came home, and he sat down, and he designed a new drill bit, a bit that could go deeper and into harder substances that, can be, that had ever been made in the history of engineering. And through prayer and the power of prayer, he made it to those men. He operates his company on the basis of his belief in Jesus Christ and that Christ has a plan for each of us and that our life is meaningful, every single life, including those 33 miners' lives. And when this mandate came down, he said, I cannot comply. And he has filed suit in Minnesota, and we have won all the way up through the Eighth Circuit. But those of you who think ministry just means being a vowed religious, or serving as a youth pastor, or serving directly in the institution of the church, let me tell you, Deacon Hall serves Christ in a way that every businessman and every businesswoman does. And we will not comply with this mandate, and we will win, and we will take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.